You ever seen a dog that's being walked on a hot day that has decided it will go no further? Isn't that glorious thing to see? It's so funny to me. Not for the person walking the dog, but, you know, they're walking along the hot blacktop and they see that cool grass that would feel so much better. And they decide, that's it. I'm exhausted. I am parking it right here. That dog has reached what Max Lucado calls its plopping point. Just plops down. The poor owner is trying to pull it, trying with all its. You would have better luck trying to move a parked semi truck than getting that dog to move once it's got up and go, or once it's get up and go, has gotten up and went. It has reached its plopping point. Now, I want to speak a word today. I'm speaking from the theme, a word for the spiritually exhausted. A word for the spiritually exhausted. What about you? Have you been to a plopping point where you think, I I can go no further? Now, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 30 today, and so we've been in a series in 1 Samuel. If you're just joining us, we've been walking through this Old Testament book called 1 Samuel. If you want to make your way to 1 Samuel 30, and I've, I've, I've kind of, for me, this is helpful to me. I don't know if it'll help you, but for me to get my head around what's going on in 1 Samuel 30, I think this is a word for the spiritually exhausted. And the way it helps me to arrange this text, last week we seemed to have some good success with, with very brief topic headings. Uh, too early, too late, right on time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that going, uh, uh, and, and I'm going to walk through the text under these headings. Uh, the, the bad news, the great news, and the good news. The bad news, the great news, and the good news. And together, I hope and pray that this will be a word for the spiritually exhausted. So we've got to begin, unfortunately, with the bad news. And the bad news is, in fact, devastating. If you weren't here last week or you don't, or you're not familiar with 1 Samuel, David has been anointed the once and future king of Israel. The current king, Saul, he's on his tragic demise. Well, Saul has been chasing David. David's afraid for his life. And David does the unthinkable. He turns traitor, at least that's what it looks like on the outside, and escapes Saul by going to the land of his enemies. He's been living among the Philistines. Can you imagine? He's in the capital city of Gath. The king there is named Achish. And he wisely tells the king, uh, yeah, don't let me be here in the capital city. Put me way out in the boondocks. Put me way out in uh, what's the farthest place from here? No stoplights. He's like, Ziklag. Sounds great. So he moves to Ziklag with his uh, 600 men and all their families. And now they're in Ziklag. And he's living a lie. He's living a lie. He is living a duplicitous life. On the one hand... He's telling everybody that he's actually fighting for the Philistines and he's, he's raiding and destroying Israelite villages. And so he brings all the spoils back to the king. The king's like, oh, what'd you do today? Oh, I really got him today, king. Oh, yeah, I really let him have it. Yeah, here's all these spoils. I've been beating up on Judah and I've been beating up on all the different tribes of Israel, his own people. And the king's like, oh, I got him. But it's a lie. He's in fact been fighting the enemies of Israel. Like all lies, his lie caught up to him. And there came a fateful day when the king said, all right, it's time to go to war one last time against Israel. We're going to finish off these Israelites forever. Right, David? David's like, he says, yeah, and you're going to line up and battle with me. You're going to be right there with me, and you're going to charge down and kill all these Israelites. David's like, now what? If If he chooses to fight, he really is a traitor. If he chooses not to fight, the Philistines are going to kill him. And then if you were here last week, God's grace came 
right on time. And amazingly, in the providence of God, circumstances happened such that David was free from the obligation. And in fact, told, you cannot fight. You have to go home to Ziklag. To which secretly he's like, yes. Thank goodness. That's what, that, right? Okay. So he's in this dark place. God rescues him. Now he's on his way back to Ziklag. They, they covered a 60 mile journey in two days because our text is going to tell us that on the third day they arrived. And you know all that stress and all that terror. All they wanted was a good meal and their warm bed back and the comforts of family. See their wives. See their children. But as I said, we start with the bad news. Look at chapter 30 verse 1. Now when David, see the narrator keeps doing this in 1 Samuel. He tells the reader stuff that the living, breathing actor, the real people in the story, they don't know yet. So we know something they don't know. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev. No. And against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. It makes total sense if you think about it. The Amalekites are not stupid. They're, very, they're a very opportunistic bunch. And they realize if every soldier of fighting age is either lined up right now, remember the battle, Philistines versus Israel. That's happening right now in the story. So if all the soldiers of Philistia and all the soldiers of Israel, the Amalekites are like, we don't have a dog in this fight. We hate everybody. They didn't like either one. So why not, while everybody is fighting, why not use that time to swoop in and to raid and pillage and plunder? It was an opportunity for them. They don't don't care. Philistine, Israel, the Amalekites are like the Pac-10. They don't even have an SEC team. They don't care who wins, right? They're just going to use this opportunity, and that's what they do. And they burn it with fire, it says. And look, verse 2, and taking captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, they killed no one but carried them off and went their way. Now, on the one hand, you might read that and go, oh, that's good, that's merciful, they didn't kill anybody. Yeah, but they weren't doing it out of mercy. Remember, why would, why would they let these captives live? Uh, to be abused and enslaved and for the, live out the rest of their tortured existence as, uh, well, human trafficking, as slaves. In verse three, you can imagine the horrifying discovery. Can you imagine they've come back 60? And in fact, I think, they, I think they speed up and there in the distance. Maybe you've had something like this. You got that phone call or you saw that there in the distance, there's a column of smoke. And not the good smoke of hearth and home, like a meal cooking, like devastating. And you, no, 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 please, no. No, 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 not ziklag. No, please. And as they get closer, you imagine them speeding up. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. And their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Now the reader and David have caught up and we both have the same knowledge. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now look, with great economy of language, verse 4. I put it this way. You've either been there and you get it or you haven't and you don't. But if you've been in verse 4, then you totally understand. That kind of pain is such that you cry and cry and your grief is such that the only thing that overcomes your grief is when you just pass out from exhaustion. That's the only thing that cures that grief. And then when you wake up, you realize you're hoping it was just a nightmare. You, in fact, your real life is the nightmare and you go back, right back into that grief. That's where they're at. I told you we were starting with exceedingly bad news. Family's captive, exhausted wept until they had no more strength to weep. And grief often comes with evil twins. Did you know that? Grief is good, but it has evil twins. One is guilt. I don't know why that is. Grief is good. It's a gift from God. It's how we process this stuff. Guilt often comes with it. That's not 
And we all do. Oh, I should have visited, you know, my aunt one more time in the nursing home. Why didn't I do that? No matter what, somebody dies, we feel guilt with it, grief. Another angry, uh, evil twin is often anger. And that's what happens here. The volcano of grief erupts. Isn't that one of the stages of, of, of grief they talk about? A, a shock and then, and then eventually a sense of anger. Look, David wasn't immune. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. We're going to hear over and over David's two wives. Um, the, uh, uh, not common now. It was common in the Old Testament. The Bible never speaks favor of, favorably of uh, uh, polygamy. Did you know that? People are like, well, you know, all these Bible Testament characters had multiple wives. The Bible must be for that. The Bible's actually against it because every time it happens, disaster follows. So the Bible actually paints it in a negative light. At any rate, David was not immune, but David was greatly distressed. Why? For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul. In other words, it's not just that they were a, they were a sorry lot to begin with. Do you remember how he recruited these 600? He didn't recruit them. They came to him because they were on the outs with Saul. They owed money and they were too deep in debt. They were, you know, uh, uh, in trouble. They were in distress. They had all these problems. They couldn't deal with life, so they came to David. So it's not surprising that they turn on him. They were bitter in soul, and that grief turned into anger, and it was directed against David, each for his sons and daughters. And you can, it makes sense, right? I mean, David, you were the leader. You should have put a garrison of troops here at Ziklag to guard our families. Or maybe, David, I knew the whole idea of going to the Philistines in the first place. We were better off when we were running from Saul in the caves. What kind of lack of faith is this? Aren't you the anointed king? They're furious. Well, king no more. And they're going to stone him. It won't be the last time in scripture, by the way, an anointed one of God goes from being hero to object of death in such a short time, will it? David is our hero to kill him. Reminds me, doesn't it, of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, how quickly the crowds became crucify him by Good Friday. At any rate, compounding the problem for David is that he's really been getting beat up for like 12 chapters now, ever since 18. You know, but this one, this one hurts particularly bad because it follows such good news. David is delivered and he doesn't have to fight. It's like a spiritual mountaintop. And as soon as he, I mean, it's like the yo-yo effect. And now it's ziklag. I think it makes it more excruciating. A marvelous escape, a moment to breathe, grand relief, only to be thrown back in the pit again. You wonder, maybe it would have been better never to be lifted out of the slop than lifted up only to be dashed back into it again. You wonder, how could David's, I mean, he's, got, he's God's chosen one. He's anointed. How could he suffer like this? Um, you ever heard the expression, that was the last straw? You heard that? Dale Ralph Davis says about this passage, for David coming back to Ziklag, it was the straw after the last straw. Like just when you think you can't take any more, yep, there's more. And some of you have been there. Some of you have been there. You, you, you have some great spiritual mountaintop, and then you are, you are thrust into despair and disappointment and this is it's like the straw after the last straw you think i can't take any more and then something bad happens dale ralph davis says some believers are tempted to add a line to psalm 30 verse 5 which says weeping may endure for the night but joy comes in the morning he says some christians want to say weeping may endure for the night but joy comes in the morning and disaster strikes later that afternoon so i'm calling this the bad news i guess the only encouragement maybe we can take from this is at least the bible isn't candy coated I mean, it's, it's realism. 
There's no hiding of the truth or preaching of a half-truth. I guess what I'm saying is, hey, there's no false advertising. When Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, he didn't bury it in the fine print. He didn't say, oh, you didn't read that part of the contract. That was the fine print. He didn't bury it in a footnote. It's a headline, Jesus said. God's chosen, these servants of God will suffer, will have trouble. So what's it going to be, David? How are you going to respond? We've seen, we've seen you in these low places before, and your lows are really low. You, last time, you, you trusted the Philistines as your personal savior. You turned traitor. What's it going to be? In, tw- in chapter 27, you never even mentioned God. You're a man after God's own heart, and you suddenly forgot God. So what's it going to be, David? You're going you're gonna to figure out some other sinful way to try to escape? You're going to figure out some other shortcut? What's it going to be? And ever so subtly, how are you going to respond, David? In the smoldering ruins of Ziklag, how are you going to respond? comes this delightfully little lie, this little surprising lie. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. Ah, oh, David, it's good to have you back. <laughs> we missed you while you were gone. You weren't yourself there for a few chapters. That's the David we know. That's the David we cheer for. The David who strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, I told you this is a word for the spiritually exhausted. So here's a a first application point. I want you to strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God. You say, well, what does that mean? Notice, all of these uh, parts of the phrase are important. David strengthened himself, but he didn't just strengthen himself as in, I mean, some translations say he encouraged himself. It means he talked to himself, but it wasn't just positive self-talk. This was not like the little engine that could, right? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. That's great. That's fine if that helps you. But the point is he strengthened himself in the Lord. And not just in the Lord. You say, well, okay, okay, fine. How do I do that? How do I strengthen myself in the Lord? I wouldn't even know where to begin. Then begin right where David began with those two words. The Lord, his God. What do I mean by that? For David, his relationship with God was personal. For you to strengthen yourself in the Lord, it begins with a personal relationship with God. This is not just a God. This is not just, yeah, 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 the Lord. This is the Lord, his God. There was always a danger in Israel for Israel to have the official faith, yes, we're the people of Yahweh, to having a vital personal faith. There's all the difference in the world between saying, yeah, 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 the Lord is a shepherd to Israel. But David said, the Lord is my shepherd. There's all the difference in the world in saying, yeah, 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 Jesus Christ is God's son. And saying, Jesus Christ is God's son who gave his life for me and my salvation. Do you understand? It's not just a head knowledge. It's not just an assent to a bunch of facts. You're saying, no, this is personal. His God. One old commentator wrote, after Ziklag was burned, think about it, David didn't have a home anymore. He didn't have possessions. Uh, the, the quote is this, David could no longer say my house, my city, or my possessions. But he could still say my God. When all other lights flicker out and you're at a point of spiritual exhaustion, you cling to that. You have a personal relationship, Christian with the living God. 
I imagine he went to his prayer journals. He called his pastor. Look at verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. Now that's what was missing back in 27. He got around God's people. He got guidance from the Lord. The Old Testament doesn't give us a ton of information about the ephod, by the way. We know that it was a a tool used by the priests to help kings make decisions. Thankfully, we have a true and better ephod. Some of you have a physical copy of an ephod. Others of you have it on your ephod. ephod. You have it on your device. Either way, do you see what I'm saying? We don't need an ephod today because we have the revealed word of God for guidance. The Bible doesn't give us a ton of details. What it's saying is David inquired of the Lord. He went to the Lord, his God. He went to around God's people. He, he got in the word. That's what was missing the last time. Ah, so he inquired of the Lord. Okay, so he wants guidance. He inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake him? And he answered him pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue awesome we got the word from god he david is in what what a different place david his god he strengthened himself in the lord and so this bad news you can almost feel it turning and they set off well where are we going i don't know can you imagine we got to go find this band of amalekite raiders where'd they go i i don't know but we're gonna catch them which way are we gonna catch them I, i i don't know that either how about this way or whatever? They set out. <laughs> I love this. Could be a wild goose chase. Verse nine. They set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor. Okay. Where those who were left behind stayed. You read that and you go, where who? Those who were left behind stayed. Who was left behind? All their wives and children have been captive. There's just the 600. What are you talking about? People were left behind at the brook Bezor. The next verse explains. Wait, I mean, are you telling me like not everybody went? David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Now we're going to come back to the brook Bezor, but there's exhaustion And then there's exhaustion. As Max Lucado writes, how tired do you have to be to give up the pursuit of your family? To give up the, the, like, here, your wife and kids have been taken, right? You and Liam Neeson and y'all are supposed to go, y'all are supposed to go find them. How tired do you have to be to be like, like that? Okay, that's exhaustion. So we got bad news and we got, we got people we got people exhausted at the Brook Bezor while everybody else is joining the fight. Pause. What do you do with these 200 who are exhausted? Real talk. The church has its share of such folks. I'm talking about good people. Godly people. And it feels like just yesterday they were marching with deep resolve. But now fatigue has consumed them. They're exhausted. They're beat up. They're worn down. They're hurt. They're broken. And there's a lot of reasons. But they are stuck at the brook Bezor. Lots of things can make you not want to go past the brook. Illness can leave you stuck at the brook Bezor. Maybe old age. Or a deflating string of defeats. Addiction 
can make you feel exhausted and stuck at the brook. Divorce can leave you at the brook. Years of failure can make you feel like you don't want to go on. Grief and loss and pain. Feeling like a church failure can make you not want to go on. Whatever the reason, the church has lots of folks that just sit and rest. And the church must decide. What do we do with these Brook Bezor people? Hmm? Berate them? Shame them? Tell them they can rest, but we're watching the minutes, okay? The rest of us are punching the clock for the kingdom. Well, the text moves on, but in the, hanging in the back of the reader's mind is the million-dollar question, what's it going to be like for these I didn't cross the brook Bezor. I'm exhausted at the Bezor brook people when the king returns. Because you know he's going to win. The ephod doesn't lie. Oh, come on. You know he's going to win. What's it going to be like? What is it going to be like for these people when the king returns? What does the church do with all the brook of Bezor people? Well, let's hold that thought for now. They found, uh, verse 11, they found an Egyptian. What? What? <laughs> I love this. They found an Egyptian. In the open country and brought him to David. You're like, okay, that, that, that's new and random. What? How? Why? This verse is so out of nowhere. They just set off and they, they, they find an Egyptian. The, the, the theological term for verse 11 is the providence of God. We call it an utterly random coincidence. But what the Bible's showing us is there's no such thing as an utterly random coincidence. Because what in the world is an Egyptian doing way over here in the open country? First of all, how'd he he get out here? Well, he can't answer because he's on death's door. Look, they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake, piece of a cake of figs, like a fig newton. And two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Apparently, he had been left there to die. And only after David, they, they, they nursed this guy back to health. He had, dehydration had set in. I mean, three days, probably about death's door. And only after David and his men revive him can he be interrogated. David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? Remember, these guys are on the warpath. They're, they're looking. Any, any, so there's some urgency here. To whom do you belong? Where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. Now, that would ring a bell for you, the reader, because you know. But David doesn't know yet. So he's like, okay, go on. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Pause. Not the point of the sermon at all. But how cruel do you have to be as an Amalekite master to be like, oh, you're dead weight. You can't keep up. Die in the desert. When two fig newtons and a cup of water saved his life, like he, he wasn't that dead. Not the point of the sermon. Utterly cruel. So then he, and then he tells him what he's been doing. These, these Amalekites. <clears throat> yeah, we had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb. <clears throat> Trying to think where else we went. Oh yeah, and we burned Ziklag with fire. <laughs> David's like, excuse me? Yeah, we burned it, man. David, excuse me? Well, like they burned it. They, I was trying to stop them. I had like water, which is why I'm so thirsty now. I tried, I, I realized now, probably shouldn't have said I burned it. Like, well, there it is. And David realizes this is the band. The, 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 these are the Amalekites. David said to him, will you take me down to this band? <clears throat> now the servant is not stupid. He realizes he has just admitted to warrior kill them all David 
that he, uh, <clears throat> that he has just admitted that he was party to this raid and burning down Ziklag. So he realizes David's going to kill him. On the other hand, he realizes if he shows him, then uh, the Amalekite, he's now a traitor to the Amalekites, and they're going to be like, you, we left you for dead. And he's like, fig Newtons, dude, let's run. But they're going to kill him as a traitor. So uh, he plays, he's got one leverage, one and only, and he plays his one card of leverage. And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So I, I'll tell you, but you got to, I want Full immunity. Don't hand me over to the Amalekites. And not for nothing, please, you don't kill me either. (laughs) David must have agreed because of verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over all the land. Oh, you Amalekites. They didn't have, the point is they didn't have any garrison of guard. Instead, they were throwing a huge party, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had, yeah, I'd say, they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Remember what I told you? They don't, they, don't, they don't care about either one. They don't care about God's people. They don't care about the Philistines. They were raiding everybody. And they were celebrating. And David, in verse 17, did what, what we all know David is really good at doing. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And here's, you see why I'm calling this the great news. Look at these verses and notice what the text emphasizes. These next three verses. Notice the totality of the deliverance. Look at this great news. Verse 18. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David, David rescued his two wives. Everybody got it? What is the text emphasizing? This was David that did it. And David recovered all. All means all. And it's like the writer in the next verse is like, nah, y'all ain't hearing me. Nah, y'all ain't hearing me. I said David recovered all. Look at the next verse. When I say all, nothing was missing. Yeah, but surely they didn't get it all. Something small was left. Whether small or great. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so they took the sons, but they probably left the daughter. Eh, More like they took the daughters, probably left the sons. No, sons or daughters. Yeah, but they didn't take all the spoil. Or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Okay, okay. It sounds like you're saying the same thing again. And this is a lot of ink to be spilled to make the point that it was David and David brought back all. And then in verse 20, he's like, I still don't think y'all understand what I'm getting at. Yeah, but what about the flocks and herds? David also captured all the flocks and herds. And the people drove the livestock before him and said, this isn't ours, this isn't yours. David recovered all. David rescued all. There wasn't anything that the Amalekites had taken that the anointed one of God could not recover. And everybody said, this is David's spoil. And you think, man, he's repeating himself over and over and over. Yeah, it's called preaching. And you get used to it because you're... You're trying to make a clear point that you need everybody to remember. You are going to desperately need this. In two verses, you're going to need to know this one thing. David recovered all. I have said over and over that in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, every single story seems to whisper his name. If you listen carefully, there's all these echoes vibrating through the pages of the Old Testament. And they point like a sign. They point us to the true and better son of David, Jesus. And the point I take away from this is when God's anointed king goes on a rescue mission, he gets it all. 
Didn't Jesus say in John 6, to those who come, I can't lose one? John 6, 35. That was close. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. You remember when Jesus said this in John 6, 39? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Didn't Jesus, what, wasn't that Jesus' mission? Didn't he tell a story? Remember the story he told about the guy who had 100 sheep and one wandered off? He didn't say, well, I mean, 99, 99 out of 100. That rounds up, you know. No. The good shepherd goes looking for that lost sheep, high over the mountain, down through the valleys, at Great personal cost to the shepherd. He calls out the name of that missing sheep until his voice grows hoarse. And the name of that missing sheep was your name. And he's not going to quit. Everything that was taken by the enemy, recovered by the Lord. Everything. This is a personal word to anyone who says, but I've lost so much. There's nothing you've lost. That God is not on a mission to restore. He said, but addiction took so much, and the cancer took so much, and the disease took so much, and the loss took so much. Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul says, I'm convinced these current sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that's coming. King Jesus will recover all. There's no mistaking the emphasis. When the king returns, he will recover all the enemy has tried to take. And some of you needed that word. I don't know, what is it, for those of you who are right now wrestling because you feel like so much has been taken from you, I don't know who you are, but you feel like so much has been taken for you, let me just ask you point blank, what does it do to your heart to read verses 18, 19, and 20? Maybe that emphasis 3,000 years ago was put in there for you this morning, right now, to hear that word. He recovers all the enemy has taken. Well, you see why I'm calling this section great news. The victory is complete, and he's recovered all the enemy has tried to take. And that's it. Oh, but there's just one thing we haven't come back to, uh, isn't there? What about, uh, what about those 200 men who were too tired to go on this mission who are back there at the Brook Bezor? We haven't forgotten about them. And the text hadn't forgotten about them. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David, I love this, and to meet, you know, the people who were with him. Why'd they call it the people? You know what people, what people are those? It's your wives and kids. Let's consider for a moment some perspectives in our story, shall we? Let's start with the enslaved wife in the Amalekite camp. She's been human trafficked. There's her kids. Her future is over. Can't even begin to describe the grief. When over the mountain comes this band of brave warriors, and you can't believe what you're seeing. During all this gluttonous revelry, it seems a rescue mission has been... Now, at first, you're scared to death because you don't know what if this is the, 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 the Cherisites coming to get their stuff back, or what if this is the Gerzites, or the... You, you don't know which ites, the stalactites. Like, yeah, there's so many ites. You just... So, so at first, you're... But then, then, you can't believe it. There, the mighty warrior coming. That's your cousin, and that's your brother-in-law. It's the Israelites. David's men have come, and they're just doing what David does, and it's glorious. And as the dust settles, you're scanning the crowd. Who are you looking for? Where's my honey? 
Ma'am, you might want to sit down for this. What? Where is he? Yeah, he, uh, uh, he said he was just too tired. Uh, I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, he stayed where? I'm going to tell you who's going to be sore when I... What about the 400 men who fought? And now they, they risked their lives. And now they've come back. And now it's time to divide the spoils? Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 you know what You know what they're thinking. We risked our lives. We were out here. Y'all were back here at the Brook Bezor. So, so when it comes time to divide up the riches, you can have your wives and you can have your children, but there's no way they're getting a portion of the spoils. And what about the 200 at the Brook Bezor? What about the men who stayed back? Let me tell you something. Worms have a higher self-esteem than they do at this moment. They're filled with shame. And to see your family brought back by all these conquering heroes and they're hooping and hollering and here comes David, filled with shame. They feel about as manly as a lace doily. And finally, and I suppose most, most important of all, What's the anointed king going to do? I mean, of all the things David could have said, I asked you this question, what's it going to be like for them when the king returns? And of all the things he could have said, they come out there sheepishly, heads held low, filled with shame, exhausted at the brook Bezor. They want to say all this justification. They want to say, I I couldn't go on, but I'm no more tired than these guys. And I mean, an Amalekite got... Got, I mean, this Egyptian, all he needed was some sugar and some water and bread. I, I, I don't have any excuse. I don't, and so they're just going out and they're ready. Oh, what a moment. This Old Testament story. And when, uh, of all things King David could have said, this. He was a man after God's own heart. And this is what happens when he's a man after God's own heart. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. The Hebrew is literally, Yisha el Shalom, peace be upon you. He goes to them and speaks a word of peace. Now you see why I'm calling this final section good news. 3,000 years later, the brave women went to the tomb of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. But the men... They stayed behind, scared to death, locked in an upper room. And when the true and better son of David, Jesus, came as a risen Lord to those shamed group of disciples, of all the things he could have said to them, what he said was, Yishael Shalom. He said, peace. You need to listen to me carefully, because I know there's people, this is right where you're at. To anyone right now who is at the brook Bezor, you are exhausted. And quite frankly, you feel like a church failure. And you don't need anybody to beat you up because you beat yourself up. And everyone else seems to be moving on. And everyone else seems to be able to carry forth the mission. And every, every single sermon goes by, yes, I'm supposed to make disciples. Yes, I'm supposed to carry that. Yes, I'm supposed to do this. Everybody's moving forward. And I can't seem, I'm stuck. I'm stuck at the Brook Bezor. And everybody else is doing this stuff. And I know they're looking at me. And I know they're wondering why I can't pull my weight. But, oh, do you know Christ's word to you today, right now, right here? His word is, Peace. Grace. 
But I don't deserve a word of grace. I didn't go fight. Ah, what'd you say? I said, I don't deserve it. Say it again. I don't deserve it. Good, that lets me know you're understanding how the whole concept of grace works. Yeah, but, but, but people are always trying to tell me that like God is mad at me and I just need to, I need to get it together. And I know I need to get it together. I, I, yeah, I know. They, they were, they've been doing that for 3,000 years. Look, verse 22, they've always been doing that to the people at the Brook Bezor. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows, <laughs> what a great way to describe uh, for so many levels. The wicked and worthless fellows apparently forgot that they were wicked and worthless and had been rescued by David. They apparently forgot how this whole thing got started. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, hey, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Now, everybody can, everybody can take the man, take, take your wife and children and get out of here. But we are not giving our spoil. It's our spoil because we recovered it. Do you remember uh, nine minutes ago when I asked you to important, remember a really, really important emphasis? What was the emphasis? Whose spoil was it? Who recovered it? It took two verses for them to get it twisted. Two verses ago, they were saying, David rescued. David did it. This is David's spoil. And now, they're hating on the people at Brook Bezor, not wanting to give him anything. Why? Because suddenly, we did it. We recovered, and it's our spoil. How quickly we go from amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, to a theology of works that says, well, yeah, but I earned a little bit of my place. They are way too impressed with their own contributions. They're operating on a theology of works. Listen to me. You will always be judgmental of the folks who are exhausted at the Brook Bezor until you come to the realization that none of us deserve his grace. Let me say it again. You will always be judgmental of the exhausted who are at the Brook Bezor until you realize none of us deserve his grace. Yeah, so you went and fought. Who do you think won that battle for you? What, you was David. How do you think you even gotten written into this story? And so David points out that very thing. But David said, he corrects him actually. He says, you say this is my victory? Guys, guys, guys. You shall not do so, my brothers. How beautiful is that? You're, you're my brothers. He says that to the judgmental. He says that to the Brook Bezor people. Hey, we're a family. None of you earned your place. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. David brings everybody's attention back where it needs to be. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's sitting about you. You didn't earn it. You didn't fail to earn it. You didn't. Whoa, whoa, whoa. None of it. The Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. David is saying, y'all are saying this is my victory. This is God's victory. You know, the apostle Paul in the New Testament had a church that could not get along in Corinth. You remember this? They could not get along. They were always fighting. They had so many issues. And he said, I can solve all y'all's issues if you'll answer me one question. It was in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. I'm certain of the reference this time. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he's asking one question. He said, if you will, if you will sit down and answer one question, it'll, you'll, it'll solve every one of your issues. And the question is this. What do you have that you did not receive? Some of y'all trying to big time other, you know, whoa. We're all welfare recipients of his grace. Every single one of us who's on this journey got here, not because, no, no, no. And so David is doing the same thing here. 
And he even makes it the, look, 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 verse 24. He, now he re, who would, he's talking to the wicked and worthless fellows. Who would listen to you in this matter? I think the emphasis is, who would listen to you in this matter? Look at yourself. How do you think you got on this team? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. Now, now what an act of grace. You see what David did there? Guys, somebody had to take the all-important task of guarding the baggage. And all the Brook of Besor people were like, that's not what we were doing, but uh, we'll take it. That's it. It's grace. He's bestowing on the exhausted a dignity that comes not from them, but from on high. That's what grace does. And so if you're here and you're at the Brook of Besor, you're going, yeah. I'm exhausted to brook, and I tell you this, David ain't wrong. I got lots of baggage. <laughs> they shall share alike. And I love it. David even put it in the bylaws. He made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. That is good news for everyone at the brook Bezor this morning. I don't know where you're at, but I want you to hear me say the scandalously shocking gospel good news that God loves you right where you are. If you are exhausted at the brook of Bezor, you've got to hear me. God is not mad at you. It's okay to rest. Jesus is your true and better David. He fights for you when you cannot. And are you struggling with arrogance? Oh, looking down on others who, in your mind, they don't pull their weight around here. Let 1 Samuel 30 be a wrecking ball into your pride. Let it humble you to a point where you see that in a way, aren't we all at the brook Bezor? And we all need his grace. I know that uh, in FBC Coleman, I know that FBC, I know it stands for First Baptist Church. Coleman FBC, First Baptist Church. I know, I know. And I'm not going to hear propose a name change. There's probably a bylaw thing for that. But at least for this week, at least for one week, could you just let it slip through the Coleman rumor mill? Could you just let it slip to everywhere that we're changing our name for one week and the FBC doesn't stand for First Baptist Church. It stands for For Besor Colemanites. That there's a word of good news. To everybody who says, but I'm stuck at this brook and I can't go any further. I, I don't deserve it. I don't, I don't deserve any of his blessings. I don't deserve, I'm, 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 I'm really failing. Hear the good news. His word to you right now is grace. Peace at the brook of Besor. Musicians are gonna come. And as uh, Brandon prepares to lead us, you know, I, boy, you look at the ministry of Jesus. He loved stories like this. He would tell story after story like this. Remember the one about the man who had two sons and the prodigal son goes off and wastes everything and he comes back and there that prodigal son in all his shame is wondering, what's the, what's the dad gonna say to me? I don't deserve, do you remember what happened? The dad, like David, goes out, runs out and meet him and blesses the son with exactly what he did not deserve. My favorite of all, the Brook of Bezor story in the New Testament is probably the... Uh, it's the one where, you remember where the farmer hires a bunch of men to work in his field for the day? He goes out at 6 a.m. And, uh, uh, and works till 6 p.m. Well, he goes out at 7, I mean, I mean 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. He goes out at 7 a.m. He goes around, he says, hey, how come nobody hires you? And they're like, I mean, why aren't you working? Nobody hired us. All right, come, I'll, I'll, I'll make, make.
at 5 p.m. It was just one hour. As soon as they get out to work, he calls them in to get paid. They get paid each day. And he says, hey, start with the 5 p.m. guys. They worked one hour. The guys in the back of the line are like, I guess one hour divided by, eh, divided by 12. They're probably not. He gives them a full day's wage. Gives them what they don't deserve. And instead of everybody going, it's all, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. Let's all celebrate the gift. You know what they did. They started, they started doing a little calculating. They said, well, if that's, if that's what you get for one hour, imagine what we're going to get for 11. And they get up and they get a full day's wage. And they go, oh, no, that ain't right. That ain't fair. And they miss the punchline of the whole thing. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. Because what you don't realize is none of you got here on your own. None of you deserve to be a worker in this field. It's all God's grace. I want you to receive that grace. And if you say, I am, preacher, you're talking right at me. I'm exhausted and I'm a failure and I'm stuck at the brook of Besor. His grace still finds people at Besor. Let's pray. God, I pray for uh, those for whom this is uh, very direct, that they feel... uh, I feel like just they need that word of grace directed right at them. I pray they receive it and they get strength, they get rest in the kingdom of God. Becomes their great passion again. And Lord, I pray for those who uh, perhaps are, uh, have a tendency toward uh, uh, pride or looking down on others. I pray, oh God, that this text would do its job and it would melt down any self-righteousness or pride God thank you that you find those who are out fighting in the battle and you also find those who were left behind at the brook of Besor grant that we may be recipients of and distributors of your grace to others all across our community this week in Jesus name we pray amen would you stand